Hi, this is Doug Howarth. In this episode of Smart Remarks, Howarth States, recorded in early March 2020, Christian and I talk about the then budding coronavirus epidemic, economic entanglement, and Kevin Bacon. Please join us, won't you, for an in-depth discussion about how all these things relate to one another. Thanks. Quantity and price are related. That's on the demand plane. And then valued features and prices are related on the value space, and they're entangled. And it seems to me that in risk, there's a whole bunch of things that are entangled. And now that we're we're taught we have this coronavirus here. One of the things I've been talking about in my posting on LinkedIn today was I mentioned the um, the impact of stock specific variables on stock prices. But what I hadn't mentioned, and I thought maybe we could talk about today, would be global variables and their entanglement across markets oh, as man, it applies to risk too, because. Basically, what everybody's doing, um, my layperson's description of what it is that somebody like you would do is that people are assigning risk in all these markets all at the same time. And now because of this this big variable of this big unknown about, well, how big is this virus? How badly is it going to impact us? People are weighing out the risks across multiple markets at the same time. And I thought maybe that would be a decent topic for us to talk about today is uh, I think we might want to call it economic and tank economic market and risk entanglement or something like that. Oh yeah. That's that a like good a- idea. Yeah. I think that's a good topic. Uh, yeah. Because uh, um, yeah. So when the method financial crisis of 2008, um, you know, people didn't think that, Everything was going to go wrong at the same time. Um, right. And uh, right. Even, even when you model uh, the correlations, uh, that's that's one aspect of entanglement. There's some correlation between risks. Uh, if one risk occurs, and another, list, another risk is more likely to occur. But what correlation does not capture um, is is the um, the thing that these things are really tied together and that that the extreme events tend to occur together. So if there something really bad happens, like the um, Chinese production basically gets shut down. Right. If you, if you look at satellite images over the last few days, the mm-hmm. typical levels of pollution um, that are in China due to uh, traffic and, and, and production is not there. So, um, you know, those things, that, that kind of thing is, uh, you know, you know production is kind of shut down and then that has a, uh, it's going to have a shock wave at some point, maybe a delayed effect. We don't see it right now. We see it in the stock market, but it's going to have an effect on the U S economy. So, oh, sure. Uh, so, and, and, uh, you know, s- some goods may not be available. Uh, so prices may go up. Um, you know, there's a variety of things, but all these things tend to go bad at the same time. And that's what they call, um, these, the, the tail events, these extreme events, they're dependent on each other. And that's not measured by mm. correlation. And that's something that people typically, uh, ignore when they, when they do risk modeling. Uh, it's, um, sure. It's, uh, it's often, it's typically overlooked. So these, these extreme events are not modeled at all. And that's, uh, so they don't really capture the likelihood of these events like the potential fallout of the coronavirus. Um, that's just not, just not captured. So, is this part of what your fat tail distribution tries to capture? Because I remember you saying that. Yeah. So part part of the part of the heavy tails is that there are, uh, you know, as uh, Shakespeare wrote, I think in uh, Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy. Um, <laughs> you know, there are more things out there that can go wrong that we just don't really think about. You know, no one really sure. thought about a pandemic that would far um, outweigh the impact of the SARS virus or the MERS virus. Uh, uh, no one really thought about that. It's always a possibility of it happening, but no one really, no one really thought about it happening. So those are those events, what I call the dragons that are lurking out in the tails that, uh, right. you know, in old, old maps, you know, uh, they used to put dragons in uncharted territory because that was an unknown area. There could be some danger there. And, uh, what's funny about, uh, in a, it's not ironic about the coronavirus or a coincidental is that, uh, 
the, uh, the, the, the one globe that's still in existence that has Here Be Dragons marked on it was on the east, uh, eastern coast of China. So, uh, so, so pretty apt for, for today's, uh, day's events. So oh, yeah, they're absolutely. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, 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 uh, the dragons out there in the tails, this coronavirus is one of them. Um, uh, there's always things that can go far more, more wrong than you think. Uh, even though we may not be able to always model them, coronavirus somewhat unprecedented. If, but if you go far enough back, um, uh, coronavirus pales in comparison to the black plague. So, um, right. So there's always, always, uh, you know, uh, precedents that are, that are worse, but you may have to, reach pretty far back in history to find them. Yeah, I know a lot of people are saying that the coronavirus hasn't killed as many people as the flu, but my understanding is that the coronavirus is much more likely to kill you if you get it than the flu. Something on the order of 20 times more likely. Have you heard that? Yes, it's order of magnitude. Um, and it seems like it's um, especially affecting much harder on people that are uh, that have other underlying health issues. And so their immune system is already stressed or and right. people that are people that are past a certain age. So apparently it's, uh, some people in it's, it's uh, had a breakout in a nursing home in Washington state. And so there could be several fatalities there. I think there are, sure. that's all the fatalities so far, I think are somewhat associated with that. Sure. You know, that, that's, that's one aspect of it. This, uh, the, 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 uh, you know the the likelihood of of uh, dying when you get coronavirus is, is higher than um, if you get the flu. Uh, it doesn't seem to be as widespread as the flu, but it, who knows that may that may change. Um, we're entering uh, about to enter spring in the northern hemisphere, um, so uh, that that could ameliorate that, and then we could be delaying um, further mm-hmm. uh, impacts of that due to uh, you know. To, to later in the season, you know, to the next fall or next winter, but um, you know that 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 may die down because we're kind of coming out of what's typically flu season and cold season, and you know, right. there's a correlation between the time of the year and um, and uh, the prevalence of those things. So that may that may change. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that the 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 uh, correlation that starts to happen within a market and and, uh, between markets. So in my work, I've seen how value and demand are linked. And and so you've got something as simple as an electric car. The electric car, the the range and the horsepower help determine the price. And the price helps determine the quantity. So quantity and price are related on what we call the demand plane. and, And the range and the horsepower and the price relate to one another in the value space and they're connected. So they're linked dual systems. And now what you start to see happen potentially is that suppose you're Tesla and you get some of your parts, say batteries from China before you get your battery factory all the way up. Now you've got the problem that you may not get battery packs. uh, the, The markets are, you know, when you think about an electric car, there's an entanglement between the, the car itself and, say, the tires for the car or the battery for the car. Unless the car manufacturer is building all the pieces for the car, some part of the market that has a problem with it could affect the the larger market, like the car market. And so one of the things I heard about, interestingly, today was that the Louvre, maybe you heard this, the Louvre is shutting down. Yes, well, they can't help but make the air travel to France start to turn down, which is going to affect the air travel industry. It might affect, if it if it lasts for very long, it might affect the demand for the aircraft. And it would affect fuel prices, I would think. Fuel prices ought to be drop a little bit lower, I would think, maybe. Um, yes, definitely. That uh, you know, so uh, global air travel has uh, increased by an order of magnitude since the early 2000s. So it's, the economy is much more sensitive to fluctuations like that than it used to be as well. So there's that that effect as well. It's getting the economy is more dependent on travel than it used to be. Yeah, which is interesting because you and I are doing a a long distance podcast and. That's, you know, these technologies have enabled more of these long-distance podcasts, but still people find that they they like to travel to 
for recreation. They like to travel for business and prices, you know, the air traffic has gone up enormously and that's what we're seeing right now, except when you have an event like this that starts to push it down. Now it's not going to push it down in order of magnitude, I, I imagine, but it's going to start to edge it down. I don't know if you heard any new statistics about what air travel has been doing lately or no. No, um, I know that a lot of companies are um, are saying, you know, you, you know, pulling back on, uh, uh, you know, what they call voluntary travel. Uh, some commerces are being delayed or canceled um, as a precaution. Um, just, you know, my own boss sent an email today saying, you know, if you feel the need to cancel any trip, um, you know, please do so. Don't put your you know, put, don't put your safety in danger, your health in danger, just because you have a work trip schedule. Um, if, if there's a cost associated with it, the company will cover it. So, um, you know, that's kind of pulling back. Uh, um, I know that uh, both my boss and I were planning to have, travel out to California uh, in a few weeks. Two weeks. We're both, yeah. yeah, we're both not doing that now. So uh, we decided kind of over the weekend, we kind of talked a little bit. And we decided we're not going to do that just because oh. of this. We don't, I mean, it's, it's hopefully it won't be an issue there, but I mean, most of the, um, you know, most of the cases in the U S right now are seem to be on the West coast, not necessarily in California, but, um, they seem to be on the West coast. So, and, and, you know, the, uh, Los Angeles is such a international hub, you know, um, so we, we decided just to, uh, decide not to, not to go out there at this time. Hopefully nothing, nothing, uh, big will happen, but, um, but you know, it's just be on the safe side. Sure. Well, geez, I'm a little disappointed to hear that, Christian, because I was planning to listen to you uh, give a presentation. Uh, oh yeah, this, yeah. This no, I hate, I hate. I was, I was looking forward to coming out there. I, I, it's a great group to uh, speak to the Southern California chapter of ASEA, and uh, I haven't been out there in about three and a half years, so it's um, kind of you know miss uh, participating in that group. It's a good group of folks. Yeah, I. Uh, I have to do some travel to the East Coast by month's end. I, I don't think I'm going to avoid doing that. I, uh, we, we have seen here locally, though, there was an article in the LA Times today that, you know, as the virus originated in China and people talk about interconnectivity of markets, here in Los Angeles, we have a pretty good-sized Chinatown. And the Chinese markets in Chinatown now are, are uh, pretty much abandoned. They don't have very many people there. Because, oh, wow. you know, sort of guilt by association. I don't think they've identified one case in Los Angeles, but yet the, the market seems to have overreacted to it, and there's nobody at the market right now compared to wow. what they usually so well, People I, do tend to overreact. I, I saw a, a, a poll that said that 38% of the public would not buy or drink Corona beer. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> even though there's no association with the coronavirus. Yeah. Why, why couldn't they name a Budweiser virus or something like that? You know, so they're probably the Corona people are probably wondering that. Right. Right. <laughs> well, they'll probably just switch. It's the substitution effect. Right. So <laughs> you're right. Um, 90% of the beer market is controlled by two companies. So speaking of entanglements, um, yeah, there you go. What Anheuser Busch and what's the other one? Um, Miller Coors. Oh, Miller Coors, sure. Yeah. So those two, those two can now control. Uh, so if you, unless you go to a microbrewery, um, and even some of those are owned by the uh, bigger companies. Um, sure. it, unless you go to a microbrewery, you're typically, and you you go to the the store and you look look for a beer. And you say, oh, I'm going to buy this particular beer. There's all kinds of different sorts of beers. And you think it's this uh, local beer or craft beer, but it's made by one of the, the big companies. Um, uh, there's relatively, you know, unless you go to, there are quite a few microbreweries. You know, there's a big fad of, of microbreweries for a while. And um, um, I just went to a microbrewery yesterday in, uh, down in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, it's called Straight mm-hmm. to Ale, Straight to Ale, A-L-E. <laughs> um, a little bit of a play on words and, um, uh, they, they are now partnering with the winery and they're making uh, wine. And so there was uh-huh. at, a, at a wine dinner yesterday. So a friend of mine and I drove down and 
participate in that. And that's one of the, that's one of the, the craft breweries that's kind of popped up, but like, unless you get beer there, uh, you're typically buying it from one of the, the bigger, you know, one of the two big companies. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting thing. I always was thinking about when I was buying beer, you know, especially at a restaurant that, the the value of the beer is of course the function of its taste and how much you're getting, but it's also a function of where you are in the planet, which is to say that higher zip codes can command higher prices for beer. And what always amazed me is you could be in some relatively low income town and they would have a beer that would be priced as if you would ex- expect it to be in downtown Manhattan, or and then conversely. You might be at a nice little beach community, which is here in California, they're all upscale, and then you might find some beers that are underpriced. So hmm. it'd be interesting to see. Eventually, I wanted to do a, a study on the uh, the um, the economics of beer because it, it seems to me that some people, some companies aren't uh, appropriately pricing their beers. And probably costing the money, which is to say that if you drop the price, you could increase demand, but only to a certain point because there's going to be a demand barrier out there at the at the end of the market. There's a, usually an upper limit to demand and an outer limit to demand in some markets, which is to say the upper limit re- reflects the amount of the max amount of money somebody's going to pay for a given beer, and the outer limit re- reflects the ability of the market to absorb beer at various prices, and there's a, there's bound to be a limit on that. Just like there's bound to be a limit on air travel, but you 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 know from ten years ago you wouldn't expected the uh, it to go up. Well, what did you say since two thousand? It's gone up an order of magnitude. The, the early two thousands, yeah, it's gone up by ten, factor of ten. Yeah, wow. So a, a, a lot of it is, uh, you know, China as China's economy grows, they become more prosperous. Their uh, citizens have more disposable income, and they can travel. And so there's a lot of. Uh, you know, a lot more travel out of Asia because they're becoming more prosperous and uh, they're, they can afford to travel. Um, sure. Yeah. The, yeah. The economics of beer is very interesting. Um, the, uh, especially the craft brewer, brewery market there, um, there was, there was a, a trend for a while for these uh, breweries, straight tails, one of them that um, uh, they tried to expand into other States and sell beer you know, all over the Southeast, for example. Mm-hmm. sell beer in a state you have to have a license for each state so they would they got an alabama license and then they got a tennessee license and a georgia license and south carolina and kind of working their way around and then uh at some point um the the market became because there were so many different craft breweries in every state the market mm-hmm. became what they call hyper local and so uh sure. people would only buy um beer from a craft brewery if they had been to that brewery and they had some sort of connection to it. Like they had, they had traveled there. They had, they had seen where it was produced and they would buy from, they would buy a craft brew from that brewery, but only, only those breweries that were, um, that they had actually visited. So, um, hmm. it's kind of retracted to some extent. And so straight to ale has not, uh, is not focusing on expanding its market. It's just, you know, across the region is working on expanding its market within the region. Interesting. Very interesting. So when we talk about entanglement, the uh, the entanglement can, can consist of local preferences then of superseding the the regional outreach then. There's there's sort of a a local versus regional versus national sort of entanglement that, that's going on, right? Right. Which is not unlike what we see now with the the coronavirus itself. I mean, as we're speaking here today, this is we're we're uh, recording this on the second of March, twenty twenty. The there have been, I think, four cases in California last I heard, and they're all up in the Bay Area. But I know you said last week your wife didn't want to travel out to Los Angeles, and and now with the potential for the virus to get into a major hub, Los Angeles International Airport. You don't want to travel there because of the chance that it could uh, migrate, even though it hasn't made it down here yet, near as we can tell. Yeah, it's it, it, well, there, according to uh, Johns Hopkins, has a really interesting GIS application where you, you can view mm-hmm. all the cases. 
Oh, really? And, yeah. According to that, there, there, there has been a case. I don't know if that person may have recovered. There has been a case in the LA area. There's been one in San Diego. I think that person's recovered, but there is a, a case in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area. If you look at the map, um, so yeah, and there's, and there's, there's a person that's recovered in uh, Tempe, Arizona. Um, uh-huh. but yeah, there's not, not many in Southern California. It's more, more, more of it's North, but, uh, yeah. So the other thing I thought about was actually, um, you know, for well, if LAX was a risk, maybe because, you know, my wife and little boy were going to come with me and then we were going to, you know, do some personal travel since we were out that way. And, um, but, uh, since, uh, so my wife got worried about it before I did and she's like, well, I'm, Miles and I aren't going, my little boy. Um, and, uh, and so I was like, well, do I want to go up there by myself and, uh, which I could do, but then, um, you know, I could think about adjusting it maybe. I was worried about LAX. Maybe I just fly to Long Beach instead, that sort of thing. But, uh, but you know, also, you know, um, because we had kind of decided to do some personal travel around that. If I, if I didn't go, then we could do some personal travel locally. So, um, so there's all kinds of, you know, things to think about with the, with the whole thing. So, um, because my wife uh, likes to travel quite a bit and we both do. And, uh, that's why we named her son miles because we both like to travel a lot of miles. And, um, it's a little joke, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so, uh, that's, that's probably what he'll tell people when he grows up. Cause we take him everywhere and, uh, he's already been to I think five countries and 13 States. So, wow. um, um, he's been to California already. We went to San Francisco last year, but, but anyway, so there's lots of things to think about. And the, so, you know, speaking of entanglements, there's second and third order effects. Um, so to, to, to every little thing. So, you know, it's just, uh, um, even though, um, it, it may not appear to be a, a big risk at the time, will small things have a cascade effect? Sure. Maybe you'd like to talk about a sec, what a second order and a third order effect are for our audience because they, uh, they may not have heard of what those mean. Why don't second you give order. an example of a good second order effect? Well, so you, you, you know, you have the, the coronavirus. So people, mm-hmm. um, people, uh, in, in China get sick. So they have to take precautions to keep the virus from spreading. Uh, that shuts down travel and then the travel shuts down and, and then the, the airplanes start losing money and the airplanes start losing money and they have to lay off employees and employees get laid off. And you know, that you might see a rise in alcohol addiction or, you know, drug addiction mm-hmm. as a result of, of, um, of, you know, their depression from losing their job. So there's all kinds of ripple effects you can see from, yeah, from small things. Interestingly here, we had a ripple effect occur back in the early 1900s. They had the San Francisco Dam broke. And it literally created a tidal wave that went all the way to the ocean and swept, I don't know, something like 100 people to their death, you know. But the ripple effect is that you had a local effect that, that you could actually see going out for miles and miles as the uh, as one catastrophe led to a whole series of downriver catastrophes. And uh, to this day, they've never rebuilt that dam. They built it on a, on a faulty, uh, faulty patch of ground, one that couldn't hold up a dam of that size. And, and interestingly, they, they had let it, they had let it get up too high. Um, there had been some crosstalk between, various agencies about when they had a series of rain events that the, that this dam was over its design limit and they let it go ahead and get up past its design limit and then it failed. And of course, a lot of people die, but that gets back into the entanglement effect. You've got a, you've got a certain thing that you're doing with your, in this case, dam that's related to some other water storage elements and you're looking for some relief, and if everybody else, nobody else can give you relief, then you're going to have certain outcomes that are going to happen. So that's another example of entanglement in a real physical sense that that uh, could have some outcomes. So, right. Yeah, and you you see that in uh, network theory as well. Are you familiar with the concept of six degrees of separation? Yeah, the Kevin Bacon game. Why don't you explain that for our audience? Sure. So uh, in the uh, late sixties, a couple of psychologists did an experiment and they like tried to see, um, you know, if they were to pick two people at random, tried to find connections between them. And, um, they, they found that 
about on average that they could connect, you know, someone in say Nashville, Tennessee, near where I live and, and someone in Los Angeles, California, near where you live, they could connect them in at most six, um, uh, degrees of association. So, so, uh, so I, I know you, Doug, and, and, and maybe, you know, um, you know, some, uh, some actor in Hollywood and then that actor knows Kevin Bacon. So we have a, a you know, few social degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. Um, Actually, I do know an actor in Hollywood and he's got, he's got pictures of himself with Wesley Snipes and, um, Denzel Washington. So he's only two degrees separated. I'm sure at most from Kevin Bacon. So yes. Yeah. And so if, I'm two so, degrees away. Yeah. You're only three degrees away from Kevin Bacon. I'm sure. Kevin Bacon. Yeah. And so yeah. I have a, no, I have a, I also have another connection to Kevin Bacon. Uh, so, so that Kevin Bacon has been in a lot of different films. And so the idea is that uh, sometime in the nineties, people uh, decided that that particular would apply to Kevin Bacon. And, uh, the actor Kevin Bacon and uh, most most actors that you could name, you could connect to Kevin Bacon and at most, uh, you know, six degrees of separation. And so that's six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, so uh, my own personal connection to that is uh, I went to uh, uh, middle school with a lady that later became an actress. She and I were in a uh, school production of Heidi. Uh-huh. She became, yeah, she became an actress. She's, uh, has some bit parts in some films. Um, she had like a, a small part in a film. Uh, you could find her on IMDb, Internet Movie mm-hmm. Database. Her, uh, her a stage name is Sydney Stone. Um, and, um, she's had a bit parts in some movies. Um, uh, I think including Babe, one of the Babe films about the talking oh, pig. Yeah. And, sure. um, and, and so then, uh, I think someone that was in that film was in a film with Kevin Bacon. So I have, uh, like three degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon through that. If you count school plays, <laughs> you know, for example, in terms of the, um, so yeah, so there's, there's that, uh, you, you uh, there's a famous, there was a famous mathematician named Paul Erdos. Uh, yes. Hungarian mathematician, uh, who was a pro- prolific publisher. Uh, and he was a, uh, especially fond of working on problems with other people. And then um, he would do the fun part and then leave them to write the results and submit the paper. Um, and he uh, co-authored, authored, co-authored over a thousand papers during his lifetime. So, wow. uh, so there's uh, also, uh, uh, you have an Erdos number, Erdos number based mm-hmm. on how many degree separation you have from Erdos. So it's, uh, um, <laughs> I, uh, um, my rush number is three because my advisor uh, published a paper with his advisor who published a paper with uh, Erdos. So, um, <laughs> so there's also that connection too. So there's all sorts of entanglements. Uh, everything's interconnected. Uh, it's not, not very big. Now they have done uh, a lot more. Um, you know, those are, those were all, for example, the original six degrees of separation was on a small data set. When they actually sure. looked at uh, Microsoft did some studies and looking at um, uh, um, instant messaging, which used to be very popular, mm-hmm. um, right. and looked at some instant messaging data and found that the average was really closer to seven, seven degrees of separation mm. between between uh, instant message users. But you know, still you, six degrees, seven degrees. That highlights the uh, importance of you know having a lot of data because the um, six degrees separation was based on you know mailing out surveys to people, and some of which would respond, some of which would not. And, you know, wind up being, you know, around a hundred, you know, data points versus 10 million instant message users. So. Oh, sure, sure, sure. That's, that's interesting. I was just thinking as you were talking there that the same actor, friend of mine, uh, he grew up in Chicago. So he's got a picture of him with, uh, then president Obama. So I've, I've got two degrees of separation from president Obama. And so that makes it three for you on that side. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and well, I've I've worked with generals. Uh, I think some of which were in the same room with with Obama at the time, so they probably met Obama. So yeah, it's like if I give you too. two on that side, then right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's great. That's cool. So what do you, you know, I mean, neither one of us is an epidemiologist, but you and I have looked a little bit at the math of this thing, and and what I noticed was that the and for those of you that have understand, you know, understand what a bell-shaped curve is, when you unwrap a bell-shaped curve, which is to say you, you look at its toll going from left to right, when you get up to the peak, you just keep 
instead of turning the curve down, you just keep adding what you've accumulated to date and make it a, instead of a periodic function, you make it a cumulative function. When you do that, you get a kind of an S-shaped curve. What I discovered looking at data on SARS and then looking at data on the coronavirus is that the number of cases seems to follow cumulative distribution function. It follows an S-curve. And it, it seemed to me, this is data from you know last week, that it looked like it was already starting to peak out in China, which is to say that the rate of increase was decreasing. It was still increasing, but by progressively fewer and fewer cases, which in math would be the second derivative went to zero, or less than zero, rather, went negative. So, Christian, you, you and I were sharing that stuff back and forth. Did you... Um, of course, I'm looking here at the map that you showed me, and there's there's all these local centers in in China. So you wonder if each time it goes to a new center, if it starts a new distribution function. Probably a new S curve, yeah. yeah. Um, it possibly could, yeah. That that particular phenomenon has has been shown time and again to occur um, for various phenomena, including um, um, like the like the um, uh, you know, the publication rate or of, uh, like the production rate of scholars, uh, and also musicians. So, um, you know, what was interesting about, for, for example, the, uh, box, you know, the publication of, of his music hey, over time, uh, yeah. you know, John, Johann Sebastian Bach, it, oh, Bach. It's this curve. Yeah. And it, yeah. It, okay. Bach, you know, as he got older, started producing less, but it even, uh, shows up in musicians such as Mozart who died, you know, in his mid thirties. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. So he, he, his, uh, productivity is already starting to tail off. I'm, pro- I guess possibly due to his illnesses, but his productivity was already starting to tail off, even though he's in his mid thirties. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been interesting to see if you, you could use something like that to predict, uh, lifespans. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it does kind of tend to follow that, that, uh, that sort of thing. It's, it's, you know, it's a matter of where you, you know, when, when can you reliably predict that that inflection has occurred? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the, kind of the key thing because, uh, uh, I saw someone where, where someone was trying to use an S curve to kind of predict an inflection point for the coronavirus early on it, and, then it's, and then it spiked again. So, um, mm. so it can be, but yeah, it does seem to be, it does seem to be peaking in China because of the, uh, the quarantine measures. And I guess also, uh, you know, making sure people are treated, um, you know, makes be seeing what's going to happen in the U S uh, so, um, in other countries, you know, Italy recently, you know, it's recently, Italy's had a spike, um, and, uh, and South Korea had a spike. So it's, I guess as it goes to each new center, I guess it has its own S curve that it'll follow. Well, what's interesting here is I'm looking at the map, um, you know, China's had a bunch of cases and, and there's actually a pretty big outrate, outbreak in Iran. Yes. But in, in between Iran and, and, uh, China, of course, there's India, and India doesn't appear to have any cases at all. Right. Uh, and, and, of course, the other point you had made earlier, which is that these things tend to be seasonal, which is to say they, they work in the winter months. Well, the Southern Hemisphere doesn't seem to have well, – there's a few cases in Australia. There's a, maybe two or three in South Africa uh, – I mean, in Africa and in South America, but they're very few compared to no- the Northern Hemisphere, which is getting back to the other points that you made. Right. It, it probably will eventually show a seasonal trend just like the flu um, and, right. and, and, and cold because coronavirus – the cold is a type of coronavirus. I mean, it's just this is a particular type of, um, of the same family of viruses as the cold. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it, it potentially could in the long term um, – um, you know, have have that kind of trend, um, and eventually, I guess uh, they'll probably develop a vaccine for it. So probably you will probably get two shots a year: flu shot and and a coronavirus shot for, the, for this particular virus. Um, uh, you know, unless it unless it proves, um, you know, th- there are so many cold viruses you can't really get uh, vaccinated against. You can only be exposed to them, and then you don't. You know, every, what's interesting about colds is. There are numerous different cold viruses. They have all kind of mutations, mm-hmm. uh, right. and you never get the same cold virus twice. You you get a cold, and then your body builds up an immunity to that cold virus. But then the next cold, you get a different, actually a different virus. 
Mm. So I'd be interested yeah. to see if the coronavirus also mutates like, like, like the cold does. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's another consideration there. So, so with respect to risks then right now, I'm seeing that they've had uh, 90,000 cases, 3,000 deaths. So roughly one in 30 cases ends up being a, a, a death. It's actually almost exactly that number. Um, for the common cold, it's quite a bit less than that, right? I mean, you, you have a lot oh, yeah. less than that. Yeah, the cold yeah. is probably very, very low. And then the, the flu, I guess, would be the... Uh, you know, it's not exactly the same virus, but uh, it's, it's most comparable in terms of people do die from the flu, but it's, it's much lower rates, like, um, you know, well below 1% of all flu cases. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, in the hundreds of percents, uh, people that get the flu virus, but this is in the, you know, three and a half, you know, three and a third percent range. I mean, that's much, right. much higher. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah and according to this map, the U.S. has now surpassed 100 people with the coronavirus, so. Uh, it's it's still spiking. Uh, it, Italy is Italy's still growing pretty strongly. It's over two thousand now. Wow. Yeah. You, yeah. I see yeah. that. And that may affect your personal travel in the not too distant future, right? Yeah, we actually have a trip planned. It's landing in Lombardy and, and going off to Veneta, which are the two regions of Italy that have the infections. So the State Department just raised the the uh, the red flag on that and said now it's I, I think level three travel not recommended. Of course, our trip is in June, mid June, and hopefully by then it will have subsided. We did take out really good travel insurance before we bought the before we bought the. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah, we just invested in that recently too. Before all the coronavirus stuff came up, but uh, yeah, it's definitely. Uh, because we have trips planned out through next summer. So, um, so who knows what's going to happen between now and then and two of our cruises. So, um, that's particular, you know, the cruise industry, uh, you know, unless this is really, um, uh, you know, you know, unless this kind of goes down and the cruise industry can be heavily affected by this as well. Yeah. Our trip in into Italy is uh, we fly into, Milan, we're there for three days. The last two days are part of a tour, and then that tour takes a, a bus to Verona, and then we hop a, a long ship, a riverboat, you know, down the down a river to uh, Venice and hang out in Venice for a few days. And it's a brand new, or at least a reconstructed boat that was it's making its debut this month, and this is on a uh, Uniworld is one of the, the lines that runs there. And you got to wonder <clears throat> how many of these, these organizations are going to have to consider what their travel plans are going to be. You know, are they, Uniworld was really good the time we took them. They, they, we, uh, they, we took a cruise on them and they, uh, we were going from, Budapest to Amsterdam, we're going up the Danube and then taking the Main-Rhine Canal and then taking the Rhine northeast to the uh, North Sea. What happened was, as we were sailing up the Danube, was that a, a, a riverboat ran aground and somebody tried to help it. And the, the, the ship that tried to help was the gravel ship and it tipped, tipped over its load and it basically clogged the canal. So they managed to swap us swap boats and, and so both both boats and that were going in one direction turned around and went the other direction. So we only missed one city and they had it pretty well organized. But that was that was an example of the the ship the the shipping line with its own series of entanglements. It had a north south route and it had a south north route. And because they had planned them to go off at the same time if they had a problem, which occasionally they, they do get jams on the on the uh, river they had to set up so that they actually had a way to counteract the 
the incident that befell them. They could they could just they put everybody on boat on on uh, several buses and then they swapped the buses around and they, they recovered everybody's trip, which I thought was really well done. So it's going to be interesting to see how we manage to navigate our way through this coronavirus here with the uh, world starting to get a little edgy on about what's going on. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is a, a good example. The coronavirus is a good example. Of, it's a black swan, you know, that, that phrase is overused sometimes. Um, right. You know, uh, there are certain things that, uh, you know, like I've, I've seen projects like, uh, the James Webb space telescope, which is the successor mm-hmm. to Hubble has been right. in development for, you know, over two decades now. It's getting close to being finished, but has, um, you know, the initial estimates uh, were uh, sort of dictated to be a billion dollars, even though um, Hubble was more than that. And um, and this was more technically challenging than Hubble. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's th- that sort of thing you, you, you knew was going to be a problem. Uh, uh, right. People 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 said that it would be a problem. Uh, people now describe it as a black swan. It's like, well, everybody, I mean, you, you know, um, you, people saw that coming. Um but uh, but no, I saw the coronavirus coming. Um, you know, the black swan is an event that comes as a surprise and has a major effect. This has definitely had a major effect. Um, and people will probably try to rationalize it at some point uh, in the future and say, oh, we, we should have seen this coming because of X, Y, and Z. But uh, that yeah. won't be the case. But that is the right. – people have the, you know, the Monday morning quarterback and hindsight is always twenty twenty. Sure. Um So this is a good example of a, of a real black swan. Um you know, what's interesting is, you know, I think we've mentioned earlier in, the, in this broadcast, the uh, the Spanish flu happened about, what, 100 years ago now? Yes. But people weren't as, as interconnected overseas as they are now. And, but yet they still had the, they still had a pretty widespread transmission of the disease. I think some people got on cruise ships and went, you know, from Europe to North America and back, and and the uh, the disease spread slowly by you know basically a slow boat to the U.S. from Europe. That was that was enough to bring it over. So it would be interesting to see <clears throat> if modeling that could help model this. I'm sure somebody's been into that, but I I haven't. Uh, gone down that path too deeply. Have you taken any look at, at what the Spanish flu did? I mean, there were many more people impacted by it than the coronavirus, right? Oh, right. Well, I mean, you know, medicine wasn't the same. Right. Treatments weren't the same. So, you know, medicine has advanced a little bit. Um, but no, I, uh, I haven't looked at that, but that did have a, an impact. And I remember my, uh, my grandparents talking about that and, you know, that it was, um, it was you know, pretty devastating back in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just hopeful that we can come, come out of this thing and, and uh, see the economy get back and be in vibrance, you know, like it was before. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what the impact will be. Uh, you know, I think global GDP, Chinese GDP will take a hit and be interesting to see what impact it has on our uh, uh, gross domestic product. Yeah, I uh, <clears throat> I often wonder too. I mean, I mean, uh, I guess you've probably been studying this too, Christian. You you've probably noticed as I have that up until the coronavirus hit, the stock market had been going up and up and up. And of course, earnings were going up, but prices went up by more than earnings in general, and so the PE ratios were at pretty high levels. The market's done a bit of a retraction now, which a lot of people thought it needed to do in the first place. But it'd be interesting to see if you have a longer reset with the uh, coronavirus on top of what should have been a market correction in a lot of people's eyes prior to right now or right about now. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, th- I think that the uh, market was probably overdue for a correction. If you look at there's something called um, uh, James Tobin was an economist. Um, mm-hmm. And he came up with a, what he called a Q ratio, which kind of looked at the, the value of the stock market relative 
to earnings and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, over time. So if you kind of plot that over time, you, you will see that at some point the, you know, the prices of the stock market will far outpace earnings and, you know, be at mm-hmm. that point is considered overpriced. And then at some point there'll be a, a correction or a crash. You saw that not too long before the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, uh, mm-hmm. stock prices were inflated. And you're seeing it now. It's been that way for a few years now that stock prices have been um, considered overpriced. And um, it's only been getting worse lately. Uh, so it's due for a correction. Uh, you just don't, you always wonder in these situations if, um, you know, the, you know, the overpriced situation also make, makes the, makes the correction more, more severe when something like this happens. If the market had been neutrally priced or underpriced, I don't think you would have seen as big an impact. Right. Well, that gets back to the other point about people overreacting to these kind of events, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they tend to, Overreact. One one thing that has been interesting for for me when we when I've been doing my studies here is that there are certain markets that are highly deflationary over time. Uh, solar panels, for example, uh, flat screen TVs. I, I think I sent to you something that showed that it, to, in equivalent dollars, three hundred dollars for a flat screen TV in two thousand, what would 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 have cost you three hundred bucks in 2000 now cost $8 and 84 cents in 2020. Right. And it, it always had been my, I guess, um, qualm about the, how they came up with inflation indices because governments don't want to have negative inflation. They, they avoid that, but I'm not sure if markets that are demonstrating negative or deflationary trends are being fully covered. I think automobiles, by and large, are pretty much at zero inflation or a slight deflation, I think, if you were to start to look at it, because you can still buy cars under $20,000, and I don't know if you could do that going back in time, uh, say 2005. I don't know if I, how many cars were under $20,000 then versus $20,000 now. What's the average price of a car? You know, there's a lot of a lot of companies have figured out how to take a lot of cost out of these uh, the vehicles, and the prices aren't going up by as relatively as much. Now, flat screen TVs are a smaller portion of people's expenditures, but as electricity gets cheaper and cheaper from solar panels, that that's that's another realm in which you could start to see deflationary trends for energy if you could keep building solar panels for cheaper and cheaper with higher efficiencies. Yes. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, it is, uh, it is interesting though, that, uh, it seems like the, the, the price of, of, um, you know, in, in defense, the price of weapon systems and satellites and things seems to either stay the same. They seem, seem to kind of stay the same. You could look at, um, the price per pound, uh, in the sixties, you know, the price per pound a day of these large systems and they're pretty comparable. I think that's because, uh, even though if you held everything else constant, the price would come down. They're always buying the latest new, uh, you know, uh, advanced system or advanced state of art, which is part of the business of these folks to advance state of art. But, um, but they're, they're kind of, um, uh, rather than get something cheaper they want to use spend the same amount and, and get something more capable so it's kind of that, that value trade-off that you talk about yeah what's interesting in, in that is that you look at certain things have um pretty flat demand curves which is to say the slope is greater than minus one which means that if you if you drop the price you'll have proportionally more revenue. So for example, the, the market for fighter bomber and attack aircraft, the overall demand curve is, is relatively flat. But interestingly, in some places, in some markets, for example, on, on radars, you know, in, um, the, the demand curve for them is quite a bit steeper, which is to say there's a lot more money to the top, which means that people, Understand that if I have a radar that can see for 50 miles and you've got one that sees for 30, you know, I've got an advantage over you and I can, I can basically 
dictate the outcome of an event prior to you being able to even be part of that event. And, and that's, that's interesting from the standpoint that it, it varies from mar- it varies from military market to military market. Probably varies from commercial market to commercial market too. Although, you know, you're not all the time when, when you're buying a car, you're not concerned about some adversary adversarial car, but when you're buying a, an airplane and it's a, a fighter, you're trying to protect your your side. You want to make sure that that's you've got an advantage over your competition, right? And they're willing to spend a great deal of money to get that, and it makes sense too, because you've got an advantage that nobody else can have. So, for example, I remember when the the F twenty two first started to play the red flag games. Uh, for those of you who don't know that, that's a military exercise that's held I, I don't know it's not every year is it Christian every two or three years um, but the what what they do is they take US forces and they 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 target against imaginary competitive forces and I remember the first time the F22 played the game the F22 launched and everybody else launched and the F22 killed all the adversaries you know virtually before anybody, before anybody saw the F-22 because it was invisible, had a really long radar, had some really long-range missiles. And so that was an advantage that it got because of some of the, the relative absolutes and the technology that is, for which the government was willing to pay. But it made sense for it, too. So that, that's, a, that's an interesting thing is the, the some markets, it, it pays to go really top end. and other markets, it pays to go at the bottom end. And that's one of the things that we study. Smart Remarks, Howard States. is brought to you by Me, Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You can follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at at me4d. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard. 